Welcome to episode six of Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. The main feature on our podcast today is an interview with Betty Lilliston talking about how agricultural policy works. But first, we're going to get an update on the latest round of NAFTA negotiations from Karen Hansen Kuhn, IETP's Director of Trade and Global Governance. Karen, you're based in Washington, D.C., and the last round of NAFTA negotiations is just concluding right now uh, there in Washington. Tell us about what you've been hearing and what you've been hearing from other people about what's happened in the negotiations. Sure. Well, you know, to start off, um, these negotiations, as we've been saying, are very non-transparent, perhaps less, even more secret than many other negotiations that have happened. So a lot of what I'm hearing are informal conversations with negotiators, people involved in the talks. Um, But what I hear overall is a real concern with the rapid pace of these talks, a sort of reckless pace, trying to finish it by the end of the year, and real concerns that the bold proposals coming out of the Trump administration are really just a first step towards backing out of the deal later. So in general, though, besides those, those big questions about process and really the seriousness of these talks, um, I would say there, there have been a couple of bright spots. Um, the Canadians have advanced a proposal for a labor chapter in NAFTA that would be enforceable, that would really seek to bring up labor standards in all three countries, including in the U.S., where some of the right-to-work laws Canadians have argued hold down wages and labor standards in the U.S. I think that's a positive proposal. Um, From the U.S. side, the U.S. has advanced a proposal that would greatly weaken investor state dispute settlement, those corporate courts that allow corporations to sue governments over public interest laws. That would be a positive step, too. On the other hand, we are hearing some very negative proposals. attacks on Canada's successful dairy supply management program, uh, proposals coming at, that have sort of kept in there from the failed Trans-Pacific Partnership on agricultural biotechnology, on access to medicines. So there is a lot that's uh, still up in the air, but uh, we will continue to follow these talks. Um, there's been a lot of press about um, Trump actually wanting to just tank NAFTA altogether and terminate the agreement. Uh, Give us a little, like maybe a 30,000 foot view of what that would actually mean and what the um, costs and benefits might be of actually just terminating NAFTA outright. Well, it's a complex agreement. So we can only speak in broad strokes right now. I would say in terms of process, Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty as to whether Trump himself (coughs) could actually just withdraw or if Congress would need to to approve those changes, particularly if it's canceling the implementing legislation from the deal. So there's that process question, if he could even do it. If he could, I think one thing we need to keep in mind is backing out of NAFTA doesn't mean we're ending trade. We still have the underlying rules of the World Trade Organization We still have an integrated economy uh, and a process that would go on for quite a while. So it's too early to tell, but I do think some of the pronouncements I've heard, you know, that the sky is falling are are pretty exaggerated. 
Mm-hmm. In the case of tariffs, each country could unilaterally decide to keep tariffs low, right? They could. Under the World Trade Organization, they've all agreed to limits, the highest they could raise them. And some of Mexico, Mexico has the right in some cases to raise things a little higher. But in most cases, countries don't raise tariffs to those limits. It will be a decision that they would find decide down the road. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the corporate lobby will, if NAFTA does end, is going to be full force in favor of keeping those tariffs low. So the idea, like you said, that global trade would end or that um, we would immediately become isolationist is kind of just scare tactics by uh, a lot of the big corporations who are benefiting not from the tariff uh, sections of NAFTA, but from the deregulatory processes of NAFTA, uh, right? Oh, I think that's certainly true. And in any case, there's a lot of uncertainty about what it would even mean if they tried to get to come out, if they, if Congress would need to vote on all of these changes. Congress doesn't actually vote on trade deals. They vote on the implementing legislation. They vote on, so it, legislation that changes a whole range of laws. Those laws have been changed. So he can't just sign them away with a pen. It would be a process. And I think everything else that we've seen out of the Trump administration um, is that they lean towards deregulation. So even though uh, Trump has railed against NAFTA, um, the the domestic policies that his uh, he and his administration have put forward um, have enabled these corporations in a way that you know, no previous administration has ever attempted to do. So the idea that there's this choice between siding with Trump or siding with corporations, I think is a pretty false notion because Trump and the corporations are ultimately on the same side and uh, NAFTA is just kind of this political punching bag. I mean, is that basically right or is, or is there more to that? No, I I think that's essentially right. And I think what's important is to step back and say, you know, what is it we want? Is what we want some kind of very complicated trade deal or more trade or less trade? No, what we want is a healthier economy. What we want is a more sustainable food system. And if that's what we want, then we need to be thinking about what are the rules that get us there? That should be our focus. Thanks for the update, Karen. Since Karen and I recorded that interview yesterday, we've learned that negotiators have reached an impasse on several key issues. We're going to be exploring those issues in upcoming weeks, but the next round of negotiations won't be till November 17th in Mexico City. Next week, Dr. Steve Supan is traveling to Mexico City for a conference on biotechnology and NAFTA, and we'll get an update from him on his return. For the main section of Uprooted this week, we're joined by Ben Lilliston, the Director of Climate Strategies here at IATP. In our first rep- episode of Uprooted, Johan Cabert unpacked what trade meant, and now we're going to unpack what agriculture means. When we say the term agriculture, there are all sorts of assumptions behind it. Um, and uh, we really want to get to the basics here and talk about what agriculture is and how the, the whole agricultural system works and who controls that system. So Ben, let's start with the very basics here. Uh, what is farming? 
Well, I mean, farming is, is uh, you know, putting something in the ground and having come up and having market to sell it. Um, it's, I think the difference is, you know, like the difference between gardening, where you're in the United States context. And, and of course, there's a difference in, in internationally where there are a lot more small scale farmers. Um, but here um, is generally um, you have a market, you have a place where you're going to sell what you're producing. Um, it, it could be animal production as well. So it's not just having something come out of the ground. Uh, and you have a market to sell it. And um, you're able to, and it may not be a food product, which is the other thing to add. It, it may be uh, something used in some kind of bioprocessing could be biofuel, could be um, an ingredient for another food product, like, um, you know, much of our corn or soy are turned into food ingredients for processed foods. Um, so that's, that's a very simple explanation of farming. Yeah, and I think one of the things we've seen is that uh, the market for products that are farmed has uh, increased pretty substantially. We've talked about ethanol, uh, bioplastic is another area, um, which has all sorts of applications across various industries. Um, but the reason that the variety of products come to be is because uh, farmers sell to a whole bunch of different markets, right? We think about food and we think about maybe the grocery store, we think about maybe the farmer's market. Um, but the reality is Farmers aren't selling directly to consumers. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens in between. So talk a bit about how that process works. Um, because what we've seen is that it's these people in the middle who are really dictating agricultural policy and contain a lot of power in the food system. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there's a, there is a small and growing part of our farming agricultural system where farmers are trying to create those kind of direct connections, whether it's to uh, farmers markets or institutions, other institutions or chefs working with chefs, but that's a really small part of the larger um, system. We used to have a lot more diversified farms in this country and more diversified production. Um, but over time, uh, a small number, kind of a handful of agribusiness firms have really identified the types of crops that they want, that and they, that they just use. Stop quick and define what you mean when you say agribusiness. What is an agribusiness versus a farm? Yeah, an agribusiness is a company that is set up to, um, could, could be, providing inputs to farmers. So like a Monsanto who's selling seeds and pest control or fertilizer company. Um, but also um, the uh, business that is buying what the farmer is producing um, and then will take that product, they may turn it into something else, um, turn it into high fructose corn syrup, for example, in the case of corn or animal feed um, or the, any number of products um, and then often they will then sell that to food companies who then create whatever kind of food they're going to uh, create and then sell in the, in the supermarket. Sometimes those comp agribusiness companies will sell under their own brand as well. And you kind of see that a little bit more in the meat industry, um, but oftentimes not. And they'll have created a number of different kinds of consumer brands that are more consumer friendly. So, for example, a company like Cargill, um, 
is known uh, far and wide in the agriculture community. But it's not so well known among consumers because you very rarely see a product in the supermarket that says Cargill, I'm buying Cargill, uh, uh, whatever, uh, corn or, or uh, some kind of meat product or deep into the meat industry. So that's, that's kind of what we mean by agribusiness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so getting back to uh, how that system works, agribusiness is buying from farmers, uh, they're, they're selling on markets. How have they amassed so much power? And, uh, you know, as they've amassed power, they've done what's called vertical integration, where they're controlling more and more parts of the supply chain, um, including the investment side of the supply chain, the finance. Um, but how did they get so powerful? Well, I think it's important to understand that our food system, particularly in the United States, is part of a global food system. It really is a global agricultural system that is also a global food system. So farmers here are the prices, the global price on a lot of what they produce influences how they get paid here in the United States. The Brazilian soybean crop will impact the price of soybeans here in the United States. What China decides to purchase um, and the levels of you know, pork that they want to buy will affect pork producers here in the United States. So when you have a global system like this, there are real advantages for multinational corporations who operate in multiple countries. So our biggest beef um, producer uh, company in the United States, the biggest meat company in the United States is JBS. They are a Brazilian-based firm but they also are in Mexico, they're in Canada, they're in Australia. They are all over the world and they're sourcing from all over the world. They're um, targeting markets all over the world. And, and so there are real advantages for them to be able to find the lowest price for whatever they're producing, the, the cheapest labor, if they're into meat processing, the lowest regulatory environment, so it's very similar. It's, it has a lot of uh, similarities to manufacturing and how we've seen that offshoring and moved around the world. Um, and it's the same for agribusiness. They have those kind of advantages. So, you know, the consolidation of the industry um, really reflects the decisions by the Justice Department and the USDA not to enforce antitrust law, not to ask questions about the impacts that this Kind of concentration will have on farmers instead they've really focused on what the impact will have on consumers and by that really focusing on price so we have a lot of cheap food so it's been difficult to make the case that consumers have been harmed by this kind of concentration um, but the only way you get to cheap food is by really uh, paying your farmers and producers really low prices and so they haven't asked that kind of crucial question which is what is the impact of farmers on farmers and and sort of livestock producers, or poultry producers. And so um, when you hear in the press uh, different interest groups saying, well, free trade agreements are obviously really good for farmers and really good for agriculture. A lot of the times what that means is it's really good for agribusiness. You talked about how agriculture has become a lot like manufacturing and is experiencing some of the same uh, challenges of globalization um, in the case of trade, or in the case of manufacturing, we have trade adjustment assistance, which ostensibly helps dislocated workers 
retrain for new jobs. Uh, the adequacy of that program is, I, I think we could, would probably agree, not adequate. <laughs> um, but for farmers, we have the farm bill and we have farm, you know, crop insurance payments. Um, but ultimately, that still led to consolidation and the loss of family farms here in the United States. So just talk about uh, the, the intersection between international trade and how the farm bill works, because the, the, the NAFTA 101 paper that you put out with out uh, in August, which is on our website, uh, talks a lot about how those two are connected. Yeah. So these global agribusiness firms, what they want, <laughs> if you, it, it's a good place to start. What do they want? out of the system. They want as much product as they can buy. So they want no restrictions on production. Um, they would prefer to have fewer farmers producing it because it makes it easier. So fewer big farms going, growing uh, products that they can buy that they can then turn into a value-added product. So like we talked about the animal feed, something used in processed food, something used in fuel, in fuel. Um, used in plastics. Um, and so our farm policy has really followed along the needs of agribusiness. The fact that we've lost so many mid-sized and small-scale farmers in this country is not an accident. It's intentional and it goes back uh, decades um, as part of a, a farm policy where um, farmers are told you either got to get bigger or you got to get out. And that, and what that means is um, as prices were going to be pushed down to what farmers get paid, as the government is going to let the market sort of dictate things and step out of the way in, in terms of ensuring farmers get a fair price in the marketplace, um, that prices are going to drop and that the smaller scale farmers and mid-sized farmers are the ones that can't survive that kind of downturn. So we saw, you know, a, a, a large number of bankruptcies in the farm community in the 1980s um, and it continues today is that sort of steady drop in numbers of farmers and producers. In the case of meat, um, you know, the industry has just set up a system of contracts now where they contract directly with producers and this is in poultry and uh, almost all of pork production um, is done through contract and they basically are not independent producers. They do, the, the companies dictate to them how things will be grown, um, the type of feed that'll be used, the type of houses that will handle it, um, the type, give them the animals, the exact animals that they want produced. They dictate the entire terms. Of course, the producer takes on the risk. So if something happens, um, they're the ones who caught, uh, caught with the bill and often are indebted sometimes to these very companies. So it's, a, it's really an exploitive system where farmers have less and less decision-making power on the farm. Um, one other way that this manifests itself is, you know, changes in the seed industry and the patenting of seeds, um, which kind of had a revolution um, 20 or 30 years ago, particularly within the, the introduction of genetically engineered um, seeds. And so farmers, not only have they have less control over the types of seeds and choices that they have in the marketplace, there are fewer choices, but also less, less decision making in terms of the type of pest control strategies that they're going to use. Um, they can't save seeds. 
um, in the way that they used to or exchange seeds or there's not that kind of freedom back and forth um, with farmers. The lo there's a loss of local seed dealers um, who used to sort of have more adaptive seeds based on a, a particular region in the country. So a lot of that has changed and that's how these, um, you know, really a handful of companies have really have a very firm control right, uh, right now uh, over our agriculture system. Right. So basically we have farm policy that encourages as much, much production as possible so that big agribusiness can buy it as, at as low a price as possible and then sell it around the world. Um, how does that play out on international markets? Talk about like what the effect has been of that kind of policy. Well, what it does is it allows, um, in, in the United States situation, you know, our farm policy basically um, is designed, as you said, to encourage farmers to overproduce, produce more than the market actually demands. And that pushes prices down, often below the cost of production. And then our farm bill comes in and helps farmers deal with that to try to stay on the land. Of course, not all of them have been able to, but when an agribusiness company like a cargo comes in and, and purchases that corn or soybean or wheat at below the cost of production and then exports it into the global marketplace into Mexico or another country, um, farmers in those other countries can't compete with that. They've un basically been undercut by a global uh, agribusiness firm. And that's called agriculture dumping when something is exported at below its cost of production. Um, and so the result has been that, um, you know, farming systems in other parts of the world um, are being adversely affected by our farm bill and our trade policy. The, the example in Mexico is probably the most stark where um, after NAFTA, uh, Mexico lost at least 2 million of their farmers um, due to U.S. exports, particularly corn. But there are many examples around the world. And, and once a, a company like Cargo um, or any U.S. agribusiness firm start to export it below the cost of production, it pushes down the global price. So it's not, they don't even necessarily have to be exporting to that particular country. As they lower the global price, it hurts farmers um, and producers all over the world. And it's not just the total acreage that's gotten bigger. It's also the intensification of the production. And when you're using massive amounts of fertilizer, pesticides, there are all sorts of environmental and public health impacts. And that's primarily what you're focusing on right now at IETP. So talk a bit about some of those external factors that go into intensive agriculture. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a very short-term approach is the way that they're approaching agricultural production. Um, and it is very intense and requires a lot of um, pesticides, herbicides. So right now in the United States, the wide adoption of genetically engineered uh, crops has also spawned um, a prevalence of weed resistance in many parts of the country, which is inhibiting growth, as well as pest resistance in other types of crops. So they're having to shift and create uh, new genetically engineered crops that often use even more toxic pesticides than we saw before. Um, in the case of animal production, there's been this move towards really large confined animal 
uh, facilities where large amounts of manure are produced and often that waste finds its way into waterways. Um, that type of production often requires the use of antibiotics to keep the animals healthy or chlorine rinses when they are processed and, and, and cleaned to try to prevent the spread of bacterial infection um, and other kinds of diseases. So it's a, it's a system that um, um, a lot of the costs are externalized um, and, and, and often it's workers who, who uh, deal with some of those externalized costs, whether it's farm workers dealing with pesticide exposure or meat packing uh, workers dealing with um, a variety uh, of different health uh, effects and risks and injuries. Um, and often farmers are the ones who have to um, themselves who are caught in this production system and, and trying to deal with it the best they can. And a lot of these unsustainable practices, whether it's CAFOs or it's fertilizer, pesticide, is actually fueling climate change. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, well, these are very uh, industrial uh, modes of production. So they're almost like factories, particularly when you look at, at uh, animal production. There you have animals that are largely indoors, really reliant on commodity uh, crops for their feed. So those commodity crops require a lot of fertilizer, um, require a lot of um, uh, large, um, whether it's combines or other types of equipment that use a lot of fossil fuels. Um, and then the animals themselves are in these buildings that are also very energy intensive. And then the massive amounts of waste that they produce. Uh, often ending up in manure lagoons um, are major greenhouse gas emitters. And California right now is looking at the large uh, amount of methane emissions, which is a greenhouse gas coming from their dairy CAFOs in parts of their state and trying to figure out how do we deal with this. Um, so the, those are major uh, greenhouse gas emitters that have sort of been left out of the climate discussion. Um, and I think that's going to change over the next uh, several decades as, as different levels of government get serious about addressing climate change. And just so that we end on a positive note, um, a lot of what we've found and worked on at IETP is some of the, the solutions to this uh, global system of agricultural overproduction for export. Um, and we found that simply by cutting out the middleman, uh, these big agribusiness firms in many cases, uh, you can build uh, more sustainable incomes for farmers in uh, a more sustainable environment, what we would call agroecology. Um, so let's end by talking about some of the solutions to how we actually get to uh, a system where farmers are paid a fair price and are able to produce in a sustainable yeah, I mean, I, I, there are a number of, I think, exciting developments taking place, um, often led by farmers, um, but also driven by consumer demand. Um, and, and some of it is a sort of reaction to this global system that is controlled by, by agribusiness and the, the system that they want. It's not the same system that, that farmers really want and that consumers really want. So there's a kind of a split right now it's taking place. So you see this large growth in organic um, demand uh, in the marketplace. 
we're short on organic production in the United States and often have to import organic uh, products. That's a clear opportunity that the Farm Bill um, could take on and could help uh, promote. You're seeing these uh, a large growth in farm to institution purchasing, uh, public purchasing from local farmers and local production. Um, again, large demand, the infrastructure isn't there. That's something that the Farm Bill, but also states and, and cities can take a lot of leadership on and are doing that. Um, on the farm side, you're seeing uh, a, a real interest in soil health um, and how do they build soil health. And one of the reasons they're interested in that is that it um, cuts costs. So what do we mean by soil health? You know, um, cover crops, looking at perennial type of grasses, um, and also the uh, uh, large interest in rotational grazing of cattle. These types of farming systems are low input, low cost for the farmer. So the next step is how do we ensure the markets are there? And they are in some cases, but how do we ensure they're there so that farmers are um, able to make the transition to these type of production agricultural systems um, and also receive a fair price in what, in what they're producing. Again, that's something that the Farm Bill could play a major role in, um, but also food companies. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that is the food companies um, recognize what consumers are demanding. And, but you have the agribusiness companies that often provide to them um, still greatly benefiting from the current system. So finding um, a way around this sort of corporate control and making it more responsive to the needs of farmers and more responsive to the needs of consumers is part of our challenge. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Tune in next week for another episode of Uprooted. I'm Josh Wise. Thanks for listening.